Well, good morning. Happy Independence Day. It's a fun, fun holiday, isn't it? It's always got a lot of fun stuff going in the community. I hope you are, have great plans for today to celebrate. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Y'all, we're getting close to the end. We're going to wrap Luke up at the end of the summer, and we'll kick off a new study. We're going to do First and Second Samuel, and I'm terrified of First and Second Samuel. I mean, like, there's just huge, massive narratives, and so somehow we've got to bring them down into preachable units but I'm looking forward to it. I always learn so much as we go through books of the Bible. But we're looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40 today. Uh, just if you'll remember where we've been as we've worked through the gospel, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And that kind of is a section of scripture we're still in, this little unit where it's all about authority. Jesus' authority is challenged as he clears the temple. Of course, they would say, now, who do you think you are to walk up in our church, if you will, and cleanse the temple? tell us that we're doing what's not supposed to be happening in the church and then come up on the pulpit and start preaching. By what authority do you preach, they asked him. And we also saw just several different examples of authority, Jesus' authority being a challenge. We also saw the idea of governmental authority, that God delegated portions of his authority to different entities, one being the government. And he says, submit to the government as far as you possibly can in obedience to God. But if it's ever calling you to sin, obviously don't do that. Today, we continue to look at uh, an aspect of authority, but it kind of fleshes out a little differently. Uh, Jesus is going to be challenged, uh, but this time his challenges, his challengers are using the Bible. They come to him and they quote Moses, which is their Bible, which is the same as our first five books of the Bible, the, the earliest form of the Bible. They said, hey, Moses said this, what do you say about that? And really, it's, it's pitting Jesus against in, in this battle between the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. It's, this attack is coming as a religious insider. This isn't pagans coming at them. This, this isn't Rome coming at them. This is within the, own, within the religious people. There's an attack saying, now, we're divided over what the Bible says, on this issue, what do you say? And it, it makes you just kind of think about the idea that you ever wonder why there's so many denominations and so many faiths, a bunch of people who all say they believe the same Bible, and yet we have differences. And sometimes that people find that discouraging, and it shouldn't be discouraging, but I mean, I don't want you to be discouraged by it. Hopefully you'll be encouraged today as we look at what we call the doctrine of the clarity of God. The clarity of God, it's just a doctrine that says that everything a willing heart needs for salvation and a life of godliness is very clearly set forth in Scripture and is able to be understood. Again, it's everything that a willing heart needs for salvation and a life of godliness is very clearly presented in Scriptures, in scriptures and is able to to be understood. Sometimes we say, man, I, I don't understand this book. I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I read it. I don't understand what it's saying. And there's so many people that just disagree anyway. So, ah, oh, what's the point? And I just want to encourage you not to get there. And today we're going to look at that idea of the clarity of scripture. Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Part of understanding the scripture is knowing that we need the Holy Spirit's help. And so we ask you to help us this morning, help us understand your word so that we can live for your glory 
and that we can enjoy the great benefits. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's work through the scene. We're beginning in Luke 20, verse 27. And we're going to be looking through this narrative of this interaction with Jesus kind of with an eye to the clarity of Scripture. And when it comes to properly interpreting Scripture, first we see there's a great temptation. So the first thing we see is the temptation that we face when it comes to looking at Scriptures. In verse 27 it says, they came, There came to Jesus some Sadducees. Those, Luke inserts this little side, Sadducees, well, those are who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, so they're quoting their scriptures, the Bible says if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, that the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for her. Now, there were seven brothers, so can you tell this is like a riddle? This is like, all right, well, if that's what the Bible says, then Jesus. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second one and a third one took her, and likewise, all seven brothers left no children and died. So afterward, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For seven had her as a wife. Now let's pause there. All right, let's figure out what's going on. First of all, who are the Sadducees? This is the first time we've encountered them in the Gospel of Luke. The Sadducees are another religious authoritative group. They're more of the religious aristocrats. They were high society. They, they were the people in society, the elite, and they were religious society. And so we've met the scribes, we've met the Pharisees, and now we're meeting the Sadducees. Now, it's always important with the idea of properly interpreting scripture, it's very helpful to always say, what is the author who wrote this? And this is true with any book, any letter. If I wrote you a letter, your goal in reading the letter should be, what did the author of the letter intend for you to get from this? And if the author has an intended point when they write the book, then you should especially listen when the author gives you a little aside as we see in verse 27, Luke says these are the Sadducees, by the way, those who deny there is a resurrection. And so anytime an author points out an aside, that is a gift from God to help you understand. Anytime you see in the scriptures a parenthetical, a parenthetical reference, something in parentheses, that is so awesome because the author is saying, you probably need to know this to understand this. And so here we see, he says, all right, these Sadducees, now remember, those are the ones that didn't believe that there is a resurrection from the dead. And so there's an old joke to help you remember this, and I love it because it's a great dad joke. Sadducees, you see, they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. Yeah, see, that's good. That's what you get at seminary. <laughs> and you thought we didn't learn anything when we were at seminary. They're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. So you've got them questioning Jesus. But notice these religious aristocrats who don't believe in the resurrection, they actually are people of the Bible. They aren't 
saying we don't believe the Bible. They are using the Bible to make their point. So they're very serious about their teachings, about Moses' writings. And so they come and they say, Moses said these things. But notice what they did when they challenged, when they questioned Jesus. They said this whole ridiculous scenario, and then they throw in this, this idea as if there's a resurrection, which we've already been told they don't even believe in the resurrection. They said, so when the resurrection happens, whose wife is it going to be? And we've already been told they don't even believe in the resurrection. So this is not a sincere question. This is not, hey, we were really wondering... We really have a sincere desire to understand Moses' writings. Would you help us understand? So their approach to studying the text is all wrong in the first place. They're not coming to the text to understand what God's word really says. They're using the text to try to make it say what they want to be proved. They want to prove something. They want to prove there's no resurrection. They have a preconceived, they've prejudged. They want to use the scriptures to support what they already believe. That's called proof texting. They are proof texting. And this is the great temptation when we come to the scriptures. What is proof texting? Proof texting is the practice of using isolated, out of context quotations from a document to establish a proposition in what is called eisegesis. That's putting into the text something you want to be there. Exegesis is finding in the text what's there. You want to be about the business of exegesis, finding what's in the text, not eisegesis, putting it in. You're introducing your own presuppositions, your own agenda, your own bias. And this is the case with any document. But as we come to the scriptures, the great temptation is to proof text. It's to find little texts. Sadly, tragically, it happens in churches all the time. Pastors have an agenda, something that they want to say, and then they just find a sprinkling of verses that they just kind of can make it sound like that. And whether it's out of ill intention or just poor hermeneutics, sorry for all the big words, poor scientific approach to interpretation. It's just bad handling of the scripture. So what was their proof text? Well, they quoted Deuteronomy 25 verse 5. So Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 25 verse 5 this passage. These are instructions. So in Moses' writings, we find God's instructions to the people of Israel how they should live as a nation. And here's what was said. If brothers dwell together, Hebrew brothers, Jewish people, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the Jewish family, shall not be married to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So this is the brother-in-law marriage in our language. It's the Leverite, not Levi, but Leverite. In Latin, that means brother-in-law. So it's the brother-in-law marriage to preserve the Jewish family lines a brother-in-law was to, a Jewish brother was to marry the woman of, of his brother to keep the family line going. But it also was to provide for her needs as the widow. If you looked up ahead in verse 9 of chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, 
it talks about how the woman had a, an, a right to insist that that brother-in-law fulfilled his obligation. It says, then if his brother's wife, his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, the one, the brother-in-law that's not fulfilling his duty, pull his sandal off. Just get this. This is an awesome law I think we should bring back. So she should go up to the brother-in-law, pull off his sandal and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. I just wanted to read that to you. Take his sandal off, spit in his face in the presence of all the elders and say, this is what should happen to the brother-in-law who does not fulfill his obligation. So this whole idea was taught by Moses. Very clear. If you read the text, what was the intention? To, to continue the Jewish family line, the tribes of Judah should be continued so that she does not have to go outside and marry a stranger that wasn't Jewish and mix the bloodlines and, and to make sure that her needs were being met, that financially she was taken care of. It, it carries with it the idea of the family's obligation to take care of someone in their family when they are made a widow. So the, that teaching is clear. In Deuteronomy, I mean, excuse me, in Genesis 38, 8, we see then Judah said to Onan, someone talking about this whole idea, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So it's clear what this text means. When you faithfully read the scriptures, you can see what it means. And here we are, however many thousands of years later, and we see what it means. But when you have an agenda, you misuse the scripture. So the Sadducees weren't open to learning the clear truth of God's word. Instead, they are proof texting and they're taking these scriptures, twisting them, trying to use them to get what they want the Bible to say. And so they come to Jesus and they're going, all right, we don't believe there's a resurrection. Moses says that you marry. Well, and then let's come up with this ridiculous scenario. Well, what if there's a wife and she marries a brother and another brother, another brother, another brother, another. Okay, if there's a resurrection, then whose wife is she? Let's take that and go to Jesus. And let's, let's challenge Jesus' authority. And let's also try to prove our agenda. And so they say in verse 33, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? Proof texting is the great temptation when you come to the text. Now we do it all the time. It's very hard not to do it. We all have our own biases, our own preconceived notions, our cultural biases, our family biases. And when it comes to sin, we don't like it when we're uh, confronted with our sin in the scriptures. And so it's very easy for us to fall into the same trap, the same temptation. In fact, there are tragic examples all throughout history of terrible proof texting. Just think of slavery, for example, that people actually took the Bible and used scripture to say, the Bible tells us that it's okay to have slaves. Where in the world could someone go to the Bible and get that? Well, there are texts that actually are giving regulations and giving scriptures that were to curtail the practices. But just by mention of that word, slave, people would say, aha, see, if God didn't want slaves, he would have told us. Ignoring that all people are made in the image of God 
from beginning to end of the scriptures. Love one another. Respect one another. Care for one another. Oh, but I see that word and I want this because this is a convenient truth. So I'm going to take the scriptures and I'm going to twist it to fit my agenda. Polygamy, exact same thing. There are texts in the scriptures that curtail the action of polygamy, but you have to deal with what was going on in the culture. People were having multiple wives in that culture, and so the Bible addresses it and deals with people who are in that situation. But just because it mentions Solomon had hundreds of wives, there's a commandment that said, don't have many wives. But someone don't ask me why, wants to have 100 wives or wants to have many wives, says, oh, look, we can have many wives. So we do it all the time. When we have, when we've been confronted with sin, when we want something, it's just like we start to see things that aren't really there because we want to justify what we want. So before we go too harsh on the Sadducees, we need to admit that we are in danger of the same temptation ourselves. Anytime that you are convicted by sin in the word of God and you find yourself starting to think about how could this be not so bad? How, oh, oh, look, here's a verse. It's when you know, okay, I need to be careful. That's why it's also very helpful to, to study the Bible in community. Because in a trusted community, and you're all studying the text together, if there's a level of relationship and trust, you can say, well, it seems like this, and someone would say, eh, I'm not so sure. Let's look at that together. Let's dig a little deeper, and let's look at this together. Scriptures are able to be understood, but there's a huge temptation that when we come to Scriptures, we have to say, Lord, help me. Help me to understand. Help me to be open to what you have to say Help, help me learn, help me put myself under the, the submission to the word of God, not over the word of God. This is where we go wrong, is when we think, when we elevate our opinion and our thoughts to equal the word, and that if I say this and the Bible says this, we're on equal ground. No, the word of God is the authority in our lives and in this church. And as I come in here each week and try to explain it, if, if you think I might have gotten it wrong, you need to start talking to some people and say, I'm not sure, did that, did that seem right? Good Bereans would research it for themselves. And you have to come to me and say, brother, you might have missed that one. And I'll be like, really? Well, let's talk about it. Help me figure this out. So it's good to admit we all fight this temptation. So that's the temptation when it comes to the clarity of Scripture is to bring our own agendas to the text and to proof text. What was the response? Let's look at Jesus' response. In verse 34, we find it. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age, so remember they're talking about all these marriages, seven marriages and whose wife is it going to be at the end if there is a resurrection because there ain't no resurrection is what they're doing. He says, okay, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead so he says there is a resurrection 
neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels, are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. So now he's turning it back on them and saying, let me quote scriptures to you. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but he's God of the living. For all live to him. And then some of the scribes answered, not the Sadducees, but the scribes. Oh, that's good. He's spoken well. Why did they say that? Because now he's agreeing with them. They just wanted to kill him just a few chapters, a few verses ago, but now he's agreeing with them. They're like, yep, that dude knows what he's talking about. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. So let's look at Jesus' response. Let's make sense of all this. Jesus is responding by also appealing to the scriptures. This is the proper, interpret- proper way to discover the truth is you go to the word of God and you let the word of God speak for itself. And so he goes, he says, Moses' writings in verse 37, that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. So Jesus looks at scriptures, says, let me show you that what you've concluded about the resurrection, because he knows what they're really doing is about the resurrection. He says, let me show you that in the Bible that there is a resurrection from the dead. And they don't like his answer. They're clearly upset. And of course, that's the case. Jesus can't have anyone in his corner. That would just be too easy. So everyone hates his guts and they're falling right in line. So let's look at his answer. First of all, notice there's two types of of ages he says this age and that age and so he's helping them think about when you talk about these things first of all understand there's two ages the current age and then the future age and then there's two types of people there's the sons which doesn't mean male but there are the people of this age and there's the people of the who are of the other age they are the future age are called the sons of God and the sons of the resurrection so you have sons of this age Sons of God, sons of the resurrection. That's equivalent to saying you have people who live for the here and now only and those who believe in the afterlife. You have unbelievers and you have believers. And so he is saying that for believers, there is a resurrection that leads to life eternal And in that eternal life with God in the resurrected life, things are going to be a lot different than they are in this age. And when he talks about there'll be no marrying, and he's basically, because of context we know, is talking about these brother-in-law marriages. What he's saying is in the resurrection, eternal life, there will be no need for these brother-in-law marriages. They will neither marry or be given in marriage for they can't die anymore. And so you can't be a widow that, that has no, uh, no one to take care of her. You can't worry about, you won't have to worry about their lineage. You won't have to worry about providing for her needs. Why? Well, because in the resurrection, they can't die anymore, he says in verse 36, because they're equal to angels. They're, they're eternal spiritual beings. After they die in the flesh... They live on forever in the eternal state like spiritual, eternal 
angels, and there will be no marrying and, and, and helping out a widow because there will be no death. And so he's just simply taking truths of the scriptures and explaining them why you can believe and, and why their whole riddle is, is nonsense. But it's important to notice how Jesus proves his point. He doesn't just go to logic. There's some logic involved. When you study the scriptures, we use our brains, we use logic, but they are brought into submission to the scriptures. So in verse 37, what we see Jesus does is he goes to Exodus. And he quotes Exodus 3, 6 and 3, 15. What does he say there? He says, but the dead are raised. Even Moses showed you that in the passage about the bush. I love that phrase. It's like, you know, the one about the bush. Now, when, when I say that to you, do you know which one immediately he's talking about? You know, in the Old Testament, Exodus, when Moses and he's talking about the bush. Yeah, I know exactly where he's talking about. He's talking about the bush where he calls the Lord. The Lord says he's the God of Abraham, uh, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this time of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had long been dead. They've been dead a long time. So how could God be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if they're all dead and there was no resurrection, there was no afterlife? That's what Jesus is doing. So he says, now he is not God of the dead, but God of the living, for all live to him. And so he simply is going to the text and making his point. I feel like I'm teaching a seminary class to a bunch of people on the 4th of July who are really ready to go pop fireworks. <laughs> Hang in there with me. So Jesus goes to the scriptures, proves his point, and he's actually brilliant because in the middle of doing this, he affirms Moses' writings, which is what they were hoping to catch him. Say, see, he doesn't even believe the Bible. And he says, yeah, just because you quote the Bible and misuse the Bible doesn't make you right. Let me take the Bible and use it faithfully and show you how you're wrong, but still believe the Bible is true. So what in the world do you care about this, right? You're like, finally. Luann's like, yes, tell me. What does this have to do with me, right? What does this have to do with us? Well, three points of application. First of all, let's think about faithful interpretation of God's word. You must see to it that you are equipped to faithfully interpret God's word. You have to take responsibility for that. If you don't know how to read the Bible, then learn how to read the Bible. If you don't know how to study the Bible, then learn how to study. You do that with everything else in life. Might we do that for God's word to us? You don't know how to play golf? You pay someone a lot of money to teach you how to play golf. You don't know how to do anything? You get trained. There is nothing more important than knowing how to properly read God's word to you. Get yourself trained. Okay, where? Right here. That's why we're here. We want to help you learn how to read and in-depth reading with a pen or, or with a computer in your hand is called studying the Bible. And so where do you do that? Well, first of all, when you go through Connection Group, we're already, don't tell anybody, but in Connection Group, we're already teaching you how to do that. 
We're teaching biblical theology. There's several chapters in there that talk about the big story of the Bible. Well, that is important because that gar- those are guardrails of interpretation. It gives you the big context of what is the big picture going on so that when you zero in on the little narrow text, you kind of, okay, I see the big picture and how this relates to that. And I see how this relates to that. We don't even have to tell you we're doing it, but you're getting that in connection group. That's before you even join. Then you can also go to core classes, and one of those core classes is called foundations class. In there, we have a whole section on how to read your Bible, how to study your Bible. Also, we have our next level of training that goes a little deeper is called cohorts, and I have a cohort that I offer that is one me with four individuals, and we go deep, deep, deep dive. Am I right? That's right. There's several of y'all been through it. And we go deep. And, and I teach you how to do what I do. Like literally at the end of that code work, you should be able to stand up in here and preach or teach the word of God exactly what I do week in and week out. Then you come in here each week and you hear how to read the word of God. You're learning how to interpret the word of God just by hearing it. It may not always be the most exciting like this week. You may wish I'd tell some more stories and entertain you and tickle your ears and I'll say, sorry, I'm not giving you dessert, I'm giving you steak. And on the long haul, it's gonna be much more nourishing to you than a dessert. Even though dessert sometimes tastes good and I'm all about homemade ice cream on July 4th, so don't get me wrong. There's no excuse though, get trained, get good resources. We have a bookstore out here. Noran likes to call it totally leggy. None of us average people know what that means, but that's a bookstore is what it means. Take up and read. And you go in there and get those books. Why? Because there's a lot of books out there. I don't know what they're teaching you, but those books have been screened by Dr. Noran Planchot. And if it makes it to that bookstore, it's worthy of your reading. It is doing faithful exegesis. Faithful interpretation. So there's no excuse. Get trained to read the word of God. The doctrine of clarity of scripture is that everything a willing heart needs for salvation and a life of godliness are very clearly set forth in scripture and able to be understood. Yes, there's disagreement. Yes, we'll come to conclusions on different conclusions on different things. But let me just make it clear. What you need for salvation and a life of godliness is clear enough if you really want it. If you don't want it and you just want to say, I don't understand all that. Okay, well, that's on you. All believers are expected to read and understand and obey the scriptures. The blame for any disobedience is always placed on the failure of the individual to receive the clear teaching of scriptures. The bottom line is put well by Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology that he wrote. Scripture is able to be understood by all unbelievers who will read it sincerely seeking salvation and by all believers who will read it while seeking God's help in understanding that this is because in both cases the Holy Spirit is at work overcoming the effects of sin which otherwise will make the truth appear to be foolish. 
Sin makes the truth appear to be foolish. The Holy Spirit makes the truth come alive and you understand it. So we must never use God's word to support preconceived conclusions. Instead, diligently seek to understand God's word and seek to be helped. Also, our newsletter, that weekly newsletter, especially this summer, there's a, a basically an exegetical guide. Observe, uh, it just walks you right through. And then each week we have that helps you understand how to ask the right questions of scriptures. Second application. Let us each think about whether we are sons of this age or sons of the resurrection. That's what Jesus says. There's two kinds of people. Sons of this age, sons of the resurrection. He says, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age, the resurrection, from the dead. Now, who are those who are worthy to attain the resurrection from the dead? Who is worthy of the resurrection? I'm going to tee it up for you. Who is the one who is worthy of the resurrection? Jesus. Those who are in Jesus, those who trust in Jesus, are the only ones worthy of resurrection from the dead, eternal life. You are in Jesus by faith, trusting that God gives you credit for Jesus' perfections. That's the only ones that are worthy of the resurrection. Not worthy because of my own merits, but because of Jesus' righteousness. And by faith, I receive the gift of his righteousness as a credited towards my account. Making, he makes me worthy of the resurrection. And that's the only one. So are you trusting in what's clearly taught in scriptures? Don't be like the aristocrats who goes, ah, that's kind of silly. I mean, resurrection from the dead. I can't prove that in a lab. I'm not sure that's true. That sounds foolish among my friends. Must not be true. Let me tell you something. It's clearly taught in God's word. Your only hope of eternal life is in Jesus Christ. John eleven twenty six. Jesus himself said, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So I implore you, put away your preconceived notions about Jesus and let God speak to you clearly. He will give you eternal life. Believe in him. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. It's clearly taught. You live, you die, judgment, eternal life in Christ. So that's number two, trust in Jesus. And then finally, let's rejoice and what Jesus says about the resurrection life in this text. He says to them some things that are really like mind-blowing. Jesus says, in the resurrection, we'll never die again. Never die. There's no death. There's no sorrow, no sadness, no tears, no pain, no sin. Never again will you ever suffer or die forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Never be in need. We'll need these kind of arrangements because there'll be no widows. There'll be no women in need. There'll be no people in need. There'll be no injustices. It'll be all glorious. One day, all who are in Christ will resurrect from the grave, be given new spiritual eternal bodies, living in a new created heavens and earth with God as their ruler, reigning and ruling in perfect, glorious justice and peace. And it's gonna be awesome forever if you're in Christ. Father, I ask for your help this morning that we would believe your word, that we would obey your word. 
And we praise you that all of that is ours in Jesus Christ. Though we are sinners, we are given eternal life by faith in your son, Jesus. Help us to hear your word, to clearly study your word, to submit to your word, and to live faithfully according to your word that we might bring you glory and enjoy the fruits that are so glorious. Enjoy the blessings. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.